2 Corinthians, if you've been looking at your watch, you recognize that it's already noon, you're already hungry, the good news is this, the food's going to be ready. So just pretend we had to drive somewhere and wait 30 minutes. I'm just kidding. I don't plan to take that long seriously. Somebody said one time, you know, your sermons are like bologna. You can just slice them off anywhere. So I'm going to be brief and to the point, but I think there is a point this morning. And so I don't want to miss the point. Great service. Just each of the testimonies. There's parts of my message that I'm thinking, they've seen my notes because uh, they just have punctuated that. So I can cut out a lot of my illustration. Dallas, thank you. Thank you for sharing. Jenny, thank you so much. David, thank you for sharing your heart. Have you ever looked at something that when you looked at it, you just didn't have words to describe it? Maybe it was a sunset, and you tried to tell somebody about it later. Maybe you're a morning person, it was a sunrise, and some knucklehead that wouldn't get up early enough to see it, you tried to explain it to them. All they wanted to see was a picture, and you realized even the picture didn't do it justice. Maybe it was holding a newborn baby in your arms. Maybe it was some natural wonder that even as you try to capture that on film and describe it to someone later, by looking at the picture, you just had to say, there's just, the picture doesn't do it justice. I can't put into words how incredible this is. That's the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15. I want to start with the last verse and then kind of walk us to that verse and end there. And we're going to move quickly. But here's that verse. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Wow. I think what we see is the Apostle Paul, who, listen, he wrote 13 letters in the New Testament, typically was not at a loss for words. I have preached through 1 Corinthians this summer at the chapel. If you'd like to listen to any of those messages, they're on iTunes. For my last message, just to culminate with 2 Corinthians chapter 9, really just those eight words. Last week we looked at the fact that Paul had been talking about taking an offering. And if you look at the book of Acts, you see that this offering for these poor first century believers in Jerusalem, the the Christians in Jerusalem were harassed, persecuted, and impoverished. So Paul wanted to take an offering for them. And it's amazing, in some of the places of the first century, Paul thought, you know, I don't even want to ask them. They, They have nothing. And yet those were the people that begged to participate in the offering. Last week we looked at chapter 16 where Paul's basically saying, you better give something. I think he was a little concerned about Corinth that was a pagan culture. Yet by the time we get to chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians, Paul's beginning to commend them for what he's hearing is going to be their generous offering. In fact, apparently Corinth was a wealthy city. And the believers there were about to bless their Jewish converted believers in Jerusalem with this incredible offering. 
So Paul, at the end of his message about the offering, just says, let's stop for a minute and recognize regardless of what you're going to give or even what they may receive monetarily. We can't put into words and you cannot put a price tag on this great, indescribable gift of God. Let me start with just the principles that God, that Paul gives us for giving in, in verse 6 and 7. He said, Now I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Just some principles about offering is this. If you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. To sow means literally to scatter seeds. Anybody plant a garden this year? One of the principles about planting gardens is if you don't plant it, it will not grow. Now, one of the things I've learned is if you plant it, it still might not grow. We'll talk about that in a minute. But if you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. In fact, the word that he uses for reap is the word harvest. So listen, if you're a farmer who has a field... And you've watched every other farmer. Maybe this is kind of like Green Acres. And you're Oliver Wendell Douglas. And you've watched everybody else plant their field. And so you're expecting to go out in your field and see a harvest. And it's not there. You know why it's not there? Because it didn't plant anything. Unless something blows over from somebody else's field, you're not getting anything. It's all about sowing. And it's all about the harvest. As Paul simply saying, listen, if you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. But if you sow bountifully, I love the meaning of the word bountiful. It's where, we get the word eulogy from there, and it really means blessing. If you sow with a blessing, you'll reap with a blessing. Now listen, just in case you think, well, Robert's done gone health and wealth prosperity gospel on us. I have not. And the problem I have with so many of those people is this equation. If you're wealthy, it's because you've been blessed by God. And if you're poor, it's because you've been cursed by God. Oh, really? How about 1 Corinthians chapter 4 that we looked at earlier in the summer where Paul says, To this present hour we are both hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. So let me ask you something. Is it possible to be right in the center of God's will? And yet have nothing? Yeah, it is. What did Jesus say? In Luke 9, he said, The foxes have holes and the birds have air, of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his, hand, his head. It bothers me just a little bit, this prosperity gospel, this name it, frame it, claim it mentality. And we spend sometimes millions of dollars on things to worship a homeless man. Do you get that? That's who Jesus was. So I'm not saying today, if you put a good check in the offering plate, you're going to have a Cadillac in your driveway when you get home. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying this. If you sow sparingly, stingily is what the word means, then expect a stingy harvest. If you sow bountifully with a blessing, then God's promised us a blessing. 
it may not be a Cadillac, and it may not be the biggest house in the neighborhood. In fact, I want to say this. Listen, some people, this is as good as it gets for them. You know what? What we have waiting for us in eternity, this looks like a garbage dump in comparison. This thought occurred to me this week, and I may have stolen this from somebody, but I want you to hear this. You harvest what you sow. You can harvest more than you sow because it multiplies, right? But you cannot harvest what you do not sow. I'll say it one more time for those of you that are tweeting. Or putting this as your status on Facebook. You harvest what you sow. You harvest more than you sow, but you don't harvest what you don't sow. You cannot harvest what wasn't scattered. So what do you do then? You give purposefully. You give as you've purposed in your heart. Talked about this last week. Not going to spend a lot of time on it. But listen, if the only time you give to the offering is when somebody makes an emotional appeal, or when somebody's standing at Walmart, or in the middle of an intersection, you're not giving as you've purposed in your heart, and you're not being a good steward of what God's entrusted to you. The purpose in your heart has the idea of predetermination in it. It means you've prayed about it, you've sought the Lord on it, and you have recognized that none of it is yours. You have been entrusted with 100% of everything you've got. Now the question is, how do you best steward that? And the third thing is, you should give cheerfully. In fact, he makes it real clear. You don't give grudgingly or under compulsion. The word grudgingly literally means grief, pain, or sadness. If you're writing the check and it's hurting, then you've probably got some spiritual issues that need to be dealt with. And if you feel somehow that it's an arm's being twisted behind your back, you're giving grudgingly and under compulsion. And I've told our staff this here before. I try not to ever say we're about to take an offering. We don't take an offering. We receive an offering. And I've thought about packing and standing at the end of the row, but I've heard of churches that lock the door, pass the offering, count it. If it's not enough, they pass it again. I've heard of churches where you wave your money in the air. Everybody giving $100, raise it in the air, and we're going to come around. What is that all about? That's about you getting credit. It's also about under compulsion. If the thought that goes through your mind is, what are people going to think about the size of my offering? You're giving under compulsion. You're giving more concerned about what man thinks than about what God thinks. What does God think about your offering? Peter Marshall said, give according to your income, lest God make your income according to your giving. Whoops. God loves a cheerful giver. The word is literally hilarious. It, it ought to bless your heart. It ought to be joy in your heart when you give. It ought to be part of worship. And I won't talk about all that I talked about last week on that, but listen. Jesus modeled that. He gave cheerfully. Hebrews chapter two, 12, verse 2 says, for the joy Set before him, he endured the cross. He gave sacrificially. And he did it joyfully. 
Second thing is the promises of giving. And I'm going to skip a lot here. But Paul says this. Just let me read the passage. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all, while they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. First of all, God will supply. Listen, I recognize human wisdom says this. If I give, I have less. Isn't that human wisdom? In fact, human, human wisdom teaches us if you want to accumulate, then you need to hold with a tight fist. And yet that is so contrary to the gospel and to God. In fact, last week I shared the Proverbs that said the generous man will prosper. He who waters will himself be watered. What does God say? Listen, God's able to make everything abound to you that you need. In fact, he quotes a verse, he said, as it is written, which is a New Testament technique of just simply saying, hey, I'm quoting something from the Old Testament. Psalms 112, verse 9. He scattered abroad. He gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. And then look what it says he does. He supplies seed to the sower. Listen, if you're worried about if you let go of this seed to sow it, that you're not going to have any more, where did you get it in the first place? You got it from God. He supplied the seed for you to sow. And he'll also multiply your seed for sowing. But you know how he multiplies it? He sees how much you let go of and how much he can trust you with. And then he gives you more. That's God's economy. And he'll multiply your seed for sowing. He'll increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in everything for all liberality. Let me just share two verses from the Old Testament, Malachi Chapter 3, verse 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house, and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. Let me stop right there. When Malachi wrote that, prophet of God, it's because the priests were starving, because people were robbing God. And then he goes on with the promise. And see if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Here's the good news. Your gift never lessens your store. Why? Because God has promised to empty the vessel back. That's what it means to pour out. And then another promise is he will rebuke the devourer. For those farmers in the agrarian culture of the Old Testament, when Malachi wrote that, it simply meant this. Listen, when you trust God with that seed, isn't that an awesome thing for a farmer to think? I'm taking all my resources and I'm sticking it in the ground. And I'm praying that it rains and I'm praying that something doesn't come and eat it up before I do. And Here's what God promises. I will rebuke 
the devourer. The word devourer literally means to eat. It means I'm going to say, stop messing with my people's stuff. Now keep in mind, that was written to farmers in Malachi's day. But folks, I think the principle is clear. I think what God is saying is this. Listen, you can either take care of your stuff. If you're going to do that, you better get a lockbox. You better build a bigger barn. You better hope moth doesn't get it or rust doesn't get it. You better hope it doesn't decay. Or you can believe God. Let me tell you what's going to happen to your stuff if it doesn't, isn't destroyed in your lifetime. You're not taking it with you. So where are we storing up our treasures? We store them up in heaven. Because moth can't get to them, rust can't get to them. But God's even promised, listen, if you'll trust me with your stuff, now I'll rebuke the devourer. I think that means, listen, I think it means the refrigerator lasts longer. The tires last longer. You can attempt to take care of it yourself, or you can do it God's way. And then he said, you know what else is going to happen? Those believers in the first century, and folks, the Jewish converts in Jerusalem kind of had a skeptical eye towards the Gentile converts. And what Paul is saying is this, listen, they're going to watch what you do. And your gift is going to go a long way to say to these people that were born into the family of God, they thought. They were as the called ones, the, the Jewish people, they were. But now they've come to faith in Christ. And here's what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth. He's saying, you're going to be a testimony to them. They're going to want to pray for you. They're going to want to spend time with you. And it's going to be a blessing to them. And then let me close with those last eight words. Thanks be to God. Folks, when you step back and you look at the history of the chapel, I think all you can say is thanks be to God. And I've already mentioned this in my prayer earlier. Doesn't that seem like such an inadequate word? To say, to, for all that God's done, when you look at the cross, it seems inadequate to say thanks. And yet that's what Paul says. At the end of this passage on giving, thanks be to God. And what is he thankful for? He's thankful for God's gift. And he uses the word indescribable. Paul's basically, it's almost like he just put a blank there and said, I don't even have a word to go in the blank. So it's indescribable. I've looked at a bunch of different translations this week to see how they attempted to translate the word indescribable. King James uses the word unspeakable. ESV uses the word inexpressible. The Amplified Version uses the word beyond telling. The Living Bible translation uses the word too wonderful for words. The message says no language can praise it enough. Folks, as we close this morning, I want you to think about something. What do you think about when you think about the cross? A.W. Tozer said, what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Well, close to that. I think when you just stop for a moment and picture the cross, and folks, the reason the cross is empty in our church is because Jesus isn't there anymore. Jesus was crucified, was pronounced dead, proof was given, he was placed in a borrowed tomb, 
why did you have to borrow a tomb? He didn't need it. <laughs> he didn't need it. In fact, he didn't need it at all, really, because the purpose of a tomb was kind of protect the body while it decomposed. That wasn't going to happen in his case. If you go to the Holy Land today, there are two tombs over there. Some people worship at this one. Some people worship at that one. But I can tell you on good authority, I've been inside of both of them. You know what? They're both empty. That's the gift that God has given us. Jesus has conquered death and the grave. He has given us His grace that we don't deserve. And so when Paul steps back from talking about the offering, he just says, thank you, God, that you first gave. What's Paul talking about? In a simple closing point he's talking about this i'm a sinner the bible says in romans 3 chapter 3 verse 23 for all have sinned and come short of the glory of god you know what that means it means that all of us in this room regardless of our best efforts or our worst efforts none of us reached god and there's a penalty for that romans 6 23 says for the wages of sin is death But don't just quote half the verse. (laughs) Because it goes on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So when Paul says, thank you, God, for your indescribable gift, what is he talking about? He's talking about grace. He's talking about Jesus dying on the cross, being raised from the dead, conquering death, paying the penalty of our sin. So my question for you as we close this morning is this. Have you ever placed your faith there? You know what? It'll be evident who God is in your life by what you give. It'll be evident by the way you live your life. But my question is this. Has there ever been a time in your life where you've said yes to Jesus? pray together. Bow your heads with me. Father, we've been brief this morning and hopefully to the point. But God, those eight words just leap off the page at me. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. For His indescribable gift. Lord, the word gift is is just four letters, and yet we recognize in it is encompassed what you have given us. So, God, I pray. I know that when that happened, when we received that gift of eternal life, the gift of salvation, it changes our life for eternity. And when that happens, people will know it because we're not the same people we used to be. So, Father, impact our heart with that message this morning. In Christ's name, amen.